singing about the grace of God gets us all ready perhaps to discuss about the grace of God. Where do you start? Where do you go? Where do you finish? I mean, it's all together grace, isn't it? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not found to be in vain, for I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether therefore it be I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. And so he was what he was by grace. He did what he did by grace. He preached by grace. He lived by grace and one day died by grace, and that was because he was saved by grace. I'm going to try the best I can in these lessons we have tonight and in the morning, tomorrow night, and two Sunday. And those five times before you, I'm going to try as best I know how to exalt the grace of God. I'm building towards Sunday. So you really need to be here. I'm not trying to get you to come because we're trying, as Klein said, to fill the building. That's very incidental. I told a couple of brethren that I was with this morning, if it was just the three of us, we'd have a good time. And one of them assured me it wouldn't be just the three. His wife was coming. And so, you know, it really, it really isn't a matter. Is it of concern? It's not to me that we're here at a break week when a lot of people are gone because we're here. And that's the important matter. We're going to talk about the saving grace of God tonight, the saving aspect of God's grace. Tomorrow morning, I want to speak about the fact, of God, the fact that the grace of God instructs, that it teaches that it gives us instructions on how we're not to live and how we are to live. Tomorrow night, I want to talk about the fact the grace of God inspires us, that it's the motivation, that it's the goal, that it's, it's the reason many times we continue when everything says quit. And if you've not been to that point, you just didn't know you were there. I mean, everybody has been to the point that they said, I'm chucking it, it it's too much, I'm through. And what keeps you going there is the thing that you keep going always by, you live by. And to me, it's the grace of God. The grace of God inspires us. And then Sunday morning and Sunday night, I want to talk about the most important thing I know, and that is the grace of God empowers, that it gives me strength, power, and ability to live above my ability, to live above the circumstances, live beyond the challenges that I can do exceeding abundantly above anything that I would ask or even imagine according to the power that is at work in us. And that's sort of what we're going to be talking about this short weekend together. I'm going to enjoy it. It's a thrill to be back here. I think this is the first time since I've quit preaching that I've been, in, that I've been back in this pulpit to preach the Word. And it feels at home. I'm looking at many of the same old faces and three or four new ones. And some of you got older while I was gone. All right, let's talk about the fact the grace of God saves. Paul wrote an in, a, a congregation very near to his heart. Maybe it was a circular letter that went to several congregations because it seems to be a little bit too general to be written simply to the church at Ephesus. And in chapter 1, he discussed the great eternal purpose of God and how we fit into it. How because God planned before the creation of the world to save us in Christ, here we are, exalted and redeemed in the blood of his Son. The first few verses of chapter 2, he discusses how we used to be. He says we were enslaved to sin, that by our very nature, by virtue of long practice, we'd become real good at sinning. And he says, but then God, by his grace, saved us, raised us, and seated us. In chapter 6 and 7, he, um, verse 6 and 7, he saved us, he raised us from our death to sin, and he seated us with Jesus at the right hand in glory. 
Then he burst into that anthem of verses 8 to 10. For by grace have you been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. He did the work. Created in Christ Jesus, he did the creating. For good works, which he afore prepared, that we should walk in them. That's an interesting little old three verses. It's all together of God, I learned. Nothing of man. So, man, what do you got to believe? That's right. And God even makes it possible for you to believe. In the book of Acts, if you remember, Apollos was teaching inaccurately the things concerning Jesus, and Aquila and Priscilla taught him the way of the Lord more accurately, and he left them, and he went over to Corinth. And in verse 27 of Acts 18, it says that he helped them much there who had believed through grace. Even the believing was through the grace of God. Jesus died by his grace. The Spirit revealed the word by grace. And the fellow who, or the lady who brought the gospel to you for the first time did it by grace. And God in his grace opened your heart. Because of his grace you believed. And because of his grace you were saved. You believed by grace, Romans 8, 27. Peter went over and preached the household of Cornelius. You remember that, don't you? And he came back. And he's on, the, he's on the carpet, so to speak, because he's had the audacity to baptize Gentiles without them first being circumcised. And he records, or re, re, excuse me, not records, repeats before the brethren there everything that had happened over there at Cornelius' household. And when he got, gets through in Acts 11, I don't remember the verse, 17, somewhere along in there, 18 I think it is, it says the Jews that heard him rejoiced that God had granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. You know what a grant is? It's not a loan. I mean, you can, you can apply if your child is in college for a government loan. Or they can apply for a government loan. Have to pay that back. Well, you should. Only about 30% of the people that get government loans do. But, but you're supposed to pay it back because it's a loan. But then if you're a poor person or there's some other reason, you can get a government grant. That's free gratis. You don't have to pay it back. It's a gift. It is a free gift. You did nothing to merit it. It came to you because the government and its goodwill and its good graces sat it up. There may be some requirements to get the grant, but the requirements do not merit the grant. The grant is because of the free will of the government and your taxes, the resources. And so repentance is a grant. It's not something that we develop within ourselves, the ability to repent. It's not something a person is born with, the ability to repent, because lots of people hear enough word to repent and don't repent. And why is that? It is because God has not granted them repentance unto life. Now, I don't know all of the inward workings of a person that enables God to grant him repentance unto life. I don't know all the requirements of a person that is enabling him to be qualified to be granted repentance unto life. But when he's granted repentance unto life, what does he have to boast of? Well, Paul said in Acts 2.8, nothing. It's not of works lest any man should boast, he said in verse 9. And so it's a matter of grace. It's nothing that we boast about because we've come to believe in Jesus, because we've repented of our sins. Nothing to boast about. Then somebody immersed us. I've always pointed back here and I forget. You know, most congregations, you can see the baptistry. This, behind that wall there, there's water. And some of us came to water at one time. Probably most of us came to water at one time and we were immersed into Christ. 
Well, what does that mean? That means we were saved by grace, justified by the grace of God. In Titus 3, beginning with verse 4, Paul says, but when the kindness, watch what saved us, all right? This is important. Because if we know this, we'll live better. We'll live more peacefully. And we'll be joyful, which is the number one thing I want to be. I want to be joyful and peaceful and saved, and I want to know it. And I want everybody that's saved to know it, because if I don't know it, I live below my privilege. Like a man who's been given a million dollars and doesn't know it, he never spends it. A person who has been saved and never knows it never spends it. He never enjoys the benefits that come to him because of salvation. In Titus 3, beginning with verse 4, notice what saved us. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love toward all mankind appeared, not in works done in righteousness, which we did ourselves, but according to his mercy he saved us. By what? His kindness and his love and his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration. There's baptism. Baptism is just the pipe through which the grace comes. When I'm thirsty, I want no drink of pipe. I want a drink of water. And so baptism is the pipe through which God's love and God's kindness and God's mercy has flown to me. The pipe is necessary to get the water here, but what do you praise, the pipe or the water? You praise the water, don't you? Because it quenches the thirst. It meets the need. By God's kindness and love and mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He poured forth richly upon us all, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't that good news? I mean, that's good news, that God's kindness and love and mercy has saved us, and that's how we were justified by His grace through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. I believe because of His grace. He's given me the ability to repent. And when I've been immersed into Him, I have been justified. Ed Wharton likes to say that justified means just as if I'd never sinned. And that's right. It means to account righteous or to prove righteous. Now, since I can't be proven righteous, I need to be accounted righteous. You know, I cannot present the facts of the case and let the facts say Rogers is righteous because when the facts of the case are presented, what I know in the bottom of my heart to be true, everybody knows Rogers is a sinner. Proud many, many times. Lustful many, many times. Hypocritical on occasions. Is that describing you, Doc? I mean, we're in this thing together, aren't we? We're sinners together. And being sinners together, we can be heirs together because only sinners can be heirs of God. Those that have been justified by the grace of God. So the world is one class sinners divided into two class saved and lost. Justified and unjustified. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, that's my introduction. We've discussed the fact that no matter all that we've done on the way to being saved is by grace. We heard the word by grace. We believed the word by grace. We repented of our sins by grace. And we were justified by grace when we were immersed into Jesus. But what were we saved from by grace? That's the important question that we're saved is incidental. I want to know what I'm saved from. 
because if I learn what I'm saved from, I can get rid of that. I'm saved from that. I've lived long enough like that. Those things have controlled my life long enough, the things that I'm saved from. And one word, what am I saved from? Sin, right? Isn't that right? In one word, I'm saved from sin. But that's nebulous. It really is. That's not practical. That doesn't get down where the rubber hits the road. That doesn't make it easier when my back hurts after eight or nine or ten long hours of work and I still have some things I need to do. Some children I need to teach or some neighbors I need to go visit or, or a person in the hospital I need to encourage or someone that's blue that I need to sit down and write a letter to. I need some practicality to this thing. I need something that takes it out of the stained glass voice and out of the platform here. I started to stay down there and some of you sat back yonder and I knew I couldn't look you in the eye and I can't preach if I don't look you in the eye. But there's a disadvantage from being, in being up here. It's elevated and that makes people think it's more important. And sometimes, you know, I call it coward's platform, six feet above contradiction. We need somehow to get what we're saying out of this pulpit and out of this place of stained glass out there where life is. And that's what I want to talk about for the rest of the time. What am I saved from? Well, I'm saved from sin's penalty. That's going to be practical out there when somebody says, Rogers, I saw you sin. You just shake hands with them and agree and praise God that I'm saved from the penalty. I am saved from any penalty of sin. Paul discusses that in that great book of Romans, and the rest of our sermon is in Romans. I mean, Paul discusses that in the great book of Romans, from chapter 1, verse 16, to chapter 16, the last verse. I mean, that's his discussion, that I am saved from the penalty of sin. He doesn't state it any stronger than in Romans 4, 6 to 8. He said, even as David also pronounceth, and I love the tense of that, it's present, David wrote this 32nd Psalm that he's about to discuss a thousand years before Paul wrote Romans, but Paul said, David is this day saying something. He said, even as David pronounces blessings upon the man to whom the Lord reckoneth righteousness apart from works, saying, notice he says it, saying, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose iniquity is covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will never reckon sin. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the gospel? There lives men and women, and I'm looking at them. I mean, there lives men and women to whom the Lord will never, ever again reckon a single sin. They have the single needed requirement, faith. We're saved by grace through what? Faith. The argument is not, does faith alone save? The argument is, what kind of faith is it that saves alone? I mean, what is biblical faith? Because faith is all there is needed for salvation. The person who believes in Jesus, who has put his full weight down on Christ, and therefore does with very little question, nobody does without question, but who does with very little question everything that Jesus says or commands or places upon a person, that one who loves the Lord and believes in him so much that it speak, Lord, your servant hears, command, and your servant does. That person is justified in any tense you want to discuss him. 
As long as that's his attitude of trust and reliance and commitment on Christ, he's saved from all past sin. He's saved from the sin he's committing. And he's saved from every sin he will ever commit because he already has the attitude of gratitude and of hope and trust in Jesus. Do you believe that, Clay? I really do. How do you think about that text? That's rain. That's making it practical, brother. I mean, Paul got it out of the theology there and brought it down here to doxology where we can praise God because of that. And God is to be praised that by his grace he has provided for you and for me the way and the place and the arena that we can live confident, that we can live not examining our lives for all the warts but praising God for all the glory that is found there. There's something terribly wrong with the best of us, but there's something terribly right with the worst of us. And that's what I'm glad about. I'm not what I ought to be, I'm not what I want to be, and I'm not what God's Word said I should be, but by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. And that's what counts. The fact that I am in Christ, and in Christ I found that no sin will be imputed to my account. I am free from sins penalty. I am so, Paul said in Romans 3, because of God's grace and through the redemption that's in Jesus. I am freely justified. I am justified by His grace. I am justified by the redemption that's in Jesus. Freely means without cause on my part. Grace means He's paid the price and redemption means He's bought me again. The price not only bought me out of prison, it brought me into his household to be his son. It bought me from prison and brought me to the palace. Are you looking at a guy that's gone from the prison to the palace? I've been to hell and back. When you've been to hell and back, what can threaten you? When you know what it is to be deeply convicted of sin and then deeply rewarded by God in the same day, What's going to harm you now? And that's where you've been, right? You've been snatched from the prison and seated in the palace. And that's what you've been saved from. You've been saved from the prison. And what you've been saved to, you've been saved to sonship and daughtership with God. You are a child of God and don't you dare forget it. I heard a fellow pray this past week in California where I was. We were in a prayer session and he said, Something like this. And I'm not mocking him. I'm quoting him. All right? He said, Oh, sovereign deity, judge of all of the universe, stern and austere creator, look down upon us who are worms. And I couldn't help it. I said out loud, not me. I mean, I really, I did, and I didn't even realize I'd have said it till I heard everybody draw breath and open my eyes and everybody looking at me. God created all the worms he wanted to in Genesis 1, and he didn't create any more worms. Thereafter, they regenerated. You are a son and a daughter of God and not a worm. You stand and sit in a high and a holy place, and don't you ever forget it. Bonnie Prince Charles lives different than any other man in England because he's an heir to the throne. I'm not an heir to the throne. I sit on it. 
I am enthroned. I've been raised to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. And as long as I remember that, my progress is steady. And any time my progress is not steady, it's because I've forgotten what I have been saved from. I've been saved from the penalty of sin. But not only that, I've been saved from the practice of sin. I didn't say from the committing of sin. I still commit sin just like you do. I don't practice sin anymore. I practice righteousness. And then when I sin, it doesn't kill me. It doesn't damn me. It doesn't, it doesn't make me lost. The most wicked man in the world does some good every now and then. Does that save him? Well, then why would the best man who sins every now and then be lost by the sins he commits? It just doesn't make sense to me that if righteousness doesn't make the wicked better, sin doesn't make the righteous worse. You see, if any man says he has not sinned, then he's a liar. If any man says he does not sin, he makes God a liar, and both of those consequences are bad. If you lie, you go to hell. If you make God a liar, you go to hell. So don't say you had not sinned, and don't say you aren't sinning, because John says then you'll be lying and calling God a liar if you do that kind of activity. Acknowledge your sin, and what will he do? Forgive you your sin. But why does he write that? Why does he write that in 1 John? Chapter 2, verse 1 tells why. I've written unto you that you, you know, that your sins are forgiven, that you may not sin. And that's an aorist word. That's a past word. That you may never commit sin anymore. I want you free from sinning. I want you free to righteous living. And that's tomorrow night's, tomorrow morning's lesson, all right? You'll have to come back to hear that one. But that's what we're saved from. We're saved from the practice of sin. In Romans 6, I am dead to sin, 1 to 13. Free from sin, well, 1 to 14. Free from sin, 15 to 23. You know that that doesn't mean the committing of individual sins. But I'm freed from the stupidity of thinking I have to. I, I could never, I, 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 it's possible for me never to commit another single sin. It is possible. It is within the realm of ability. I don't think probability. But it's within the realm of ability for you never to sin again. Because God will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able. But he will with the temptation make also the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is a way of escape. You're able to endure. He'll make you able to endure every single sin. So every time I sin, is my fault. It never was beyond my ability. I can never say the devil made me do it. I can never say the temptation was too great. All I can say is I forgot my salvation. I forgot the grace of God. I refused to look for the way out. I refused to reach for the help that was available. I refused the grace of God. Well, when I know that, that makes it a little bit more practical. I can live a life of holiness. But to be free from the penalty and the practice still doesn't make me really free from sin. I can be free from its penalty. I can be free from its practice. But until I am free from the propensity to sin, I am not free. And God knows that's what I'm after. I'm getting it in some places. Are you getting it in some places? I mean, some places in my life, I'm getting to where I don't even want to sin anymore. I am free from the propensity, and I'm not tempted in those areas anymore. There are some areas that used to control my life that no longer do, of sinful area. 
I'm sure there's still some sinful things in control of my life. I like it, and that shows I'm free from the propensity of it, the love of it, the polishing of it, the cultivating of it. Do you do sin that way sometimes? Just cultivate the opportunity and just build it up and then say, man, it was just too big. It's too big because I made it too big. In Romans 8, Paul talks about new things. He talks about the new life that I live and that it's a life totally free from even the desire, the propensity to sin. Even now, when I desire it, I don't desire it. As he said in Romans 7, I don't live that way anymore. He says, used to, I wanted to do the good and I did the evil. And I didn't want to do the evil and that's the very thing that I did. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me out of the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. In 8.1, he leaves the then and comes to the now. Romans 8.1 is now. There is therefore now no condemnation. So watch chapter 7. Now or then? It's then. Back when I loved sin and cultivated it and enjoyed it and sought opportunities to, it, to reach its fulfillment and really become the great thing in my life and was a practiced and a well, a very good at sin. In those days, I'd see the good and I'd say, yeah, I'll do that. And I'd sit down and start it and sin would come into my mind. I'd get up and go do the sin. I think today that if I sat down to do sin, good would come in my mind and I'd get up to go do the good. I believe that that transformation has taken place in your life. Don't you know that? I mean, that transformation that enables you to know that you've got a new state, a new status, and that is without condemnation. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law couldn't do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that what the law required might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Are you in Jesus? If not, you need to be before you leave tonight, right? Are you walking not after the flesh but after the Spirit? Are you living by the Spirit of God? Are you living in Jesus and in His Spirit? Well, if not, you need to do so before you leave tonight. Don't you get that right? Because you see, if a person is in Christ and he is living by the Spirit, you can write this across his or her forehead. No kind of condemnation. The devil can't condemn you. Your brethren can't condemn you. And you can't condemn you. And that's the most important one. You don't have a right to condemn yourself. For even if our heart condemns us, John says in 1 John, God is greater than our heart. So even when our heart harbors wrong against us, God smiles and says, Son, will you ever grow up and understand the relationship that you and I have? Will you never understand that all I want is you? I'll take care of your life and I'll make it get better day by day, and I'll create good works for you to walk in, and I'll create the desire in your heart if you will just surrender, if you will just give up, give over, and give out, I will put in. I will do it. Believe me, he said. 
I will do it, and I'll make it where nobody and no thing will ever condemn you. That's your new state. And he said, I'll give you a new control in verses 9 through 11. I'm not going to read all Romans 8. In 9 through 11, he says he's given you a new control. He says, those that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but those that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. He says, you have a new control, the Spirit of God. And that Spirit, he's going to say in the next paragraph, will enable you to put to death the deeds of the body. You need to, he will say, in verse 14 in the next paragraph, to be led by the Spirit. The Romans chapter 8 is a chapter on the Spirit. Because there's where freedom from sin's propensity comes. It comes in acknowledging the Spirit's presence, in knowledge, acknowledging the Spirit's power and acknowledging the Spirit's proddings. If I will just know He's present and powerful and prods, I will be led by the Spirit. If I'll follow the Spirit's nudging through His Word and through the brethren's influence in my life and through the world's ungodly pull the other direction. If the world lacks it, don't believe it. It's wrong. Nothing the world loves is right. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, Jesus said in John 15. So you and I are now under a new control. The world holds no treasures but perish with using, however precious they be. Brother Tiddley wrote that poem, didn't he? I mean, Tiddley, Tiddley, I think he did. It's right, absolutely right. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be the Spirit of God lives in you. Then beginning in verse 12 and going through verse 17, he talks about a new debt. I've got a new state without condemnation. I've got a new control, the Holy Spirit in me. I've got a new debt, that is to allow the Spirit to put to death the deeds of my body. He says, you through the Spirit will put to death the deeds of the body, not through New Year's or Old Year resolutions. I've learned that you can make all the resolves you want to in the morning, but you won't keep them till noon. There is just no way that resolve will get the job done. You have got to yield to the Spirit of God and quit trying to brute strength and awkwardness it into righteousness. It can't work. It won't work. It never has. It never will. Give up. Give out. Give over. And he'll put in. He promised he will. But he pours nothing in a cup that has anything in it. He pours absolutely nothing in a cup that has anything in it. Until you allow, and I'll allow, the Spirit of God to empty that cup, whether it comes by peace or by war, whether it comes in righteousness or in sin, whether it comes in up times or down times or in between times, when the Spirit of God turns you upside down and all of self flows out, when you get right side up, you're going to be in debt. And that debt is to the Spirit of God who will enable you to put to death the deeds of the body. In verses 18 to 25, he gives us new hope. We've got a new state, new control, new debt. We've got a new hope. It's a glorified body. He says, we groan. We that are in this body groan, being burdened. Not that we should, well, I've got the wrong passage. I'm in 2 Corinthians. Thank God it's still written because I've got the wrong passage. Let's start it again. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption. What's that? The redemptions of our body. That's verse 23. For in this hope were we saved. You know what keeps you saved? It's not remembering the baptistry. 
it's looking forward to a new body. He says the hope of the redemption of this body, the hope of being like Jesus, or to be like the blessed Redeemer. This is my constant longing in prayer. That keeps you faithful. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. For this cause the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, it's not yet made manifest what you shall be, but you shall be like him. For when he appears, you will see him even as he is. As many as have this hope sitteth upon himself, purifieth himself, even as he is pure. John, 1 John 3, 1 to 3. Isn't that good? That means that every day I'm getting more and more like him. But one day, the day of days, when I die, will everybody please rejoice? Because I'm going to be with him. But the day of the day of days is when Gabriel blows a trumpet and Jesus shouts and the heaven splits and the earth's on fire and we're going to see him. He's coming to be gloried in by his saints. 2 Thessalonians 1 says, we go, oh my, get a look at that, Brian. It's better than we ever imagined. Look at him. Look at Jesus. And bam, we're like we leave the ground like he left the ground and whammo, the change of all changes. This fleshly puts on spiritual. This mortal puts on immortality and this corruptible puts on incorruptible. In a flash, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I'm like him. And that's what saved by grace means. It means that's my hope. That's my new hope. I don't hope for gold. I don't hope for a full auditorium. I don't hope for an evangelized world. I hope for a changed body. And that'll be better than gold. And that'll fill the auditorium. And that'll evangelize the world. If I ever get deep in me, the only thing I want and the only thing I desire is to be like Jesus. You can take the world. I'll take Jesus. He's more than all the world combined. I get a new help. I get a new state, a new control, a new debt, a new hope. I get a new help. And that help is divine intercession and intervention. In the midst of sin or in the midst of joy, I don't know how to pray. I'll grunt and groan. So I read that the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. He intercedes with our unutterable groanings. And so God who knows the hearts of the Spirit, hear our hearts, Here's the intercession of the Spirit and answers the prayer we would have prayed had we know how to pray. That's some kind of help, isn't it, when all you do is grunt and the Spirit says, Father, if he had the ability, here's what he'd be saying. And the Father said, I knew it all along. I was reading his heart. And the Son says, would you please answer it? I think I'd move God. Don't you think I'd move God? To be able to read my heart and to hear the Spirit's intercession, to hear Jesus' amen, let's give it to him. See, the Father hears what I need and, and the Spirit says, I want him to have it. And Jesus, I want him to have it too. I think I'd move God. That's some kind of help. And you know this for sure, that whatever happens, God works it out for good. Whatever happens, whatever happens, God works it out for good. If you love him, do you love him? And if you're called according to his purpose, are you called according to his purpose? Then why do sometimes we wring unholy hands in despair rather than lifting holy hands in prayer?
The answer for that's simple, isn't it? We've forgotten we're saved. We've forgotten the grace of God. We've received the grace of God, at least in that moment, in vain. Because we've forgotten the help that is available. All you have to do is holler, help, and you got it. I mean divine help. The Spirit will intercede and God will intervene. He's been doing that from before the foundation of the world and will do it when there is no more world. That's what 29 and 30 says. For whom he foreknew, then he also foreordained. Whom he foreordained, then he also con uh, foreordained to be conformed to the injury of his son. He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Whom he foreordained, he also called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. He started in one eternity with his foreknowledge and ends in another eternity with his glorification. And he says, look, if he's got one hand on what happened in eternity before the world was and one hand on eternity after the world ceases to be, why in the world are you worrying about anything in the middle? Why would you be concerned with anything on this small island of time when God owns the whole ocean of eternity in which your life is but a speck on an island in the midst of that sea? Isn't that good news? God is in control. That's being saved by the grace of God. We got a new state, a new control, a new debt, a new hope, a new help. And maybe best of all, we got a new victory. I love people when they get to the end of a sermon and say, now what I've been trying to say is, here's what Paul's been trying to say. And I've just been trying to let him say it. He said, what shall we say then? What are we going to say to these things? Or as the NIV says, what are we going to say in response to all this? In response to all of this new state, new control, new debt, new hope, new help, what are we going to say? Well, let's try this. God is for us. Who then can be against us? You forget that recently? Have you forgotten maybe today that God's for you? He's on your side. He really is. In my neighborhood, anybody that Garden Hobgood elected to play football with him won. He could win without us. So he just chose people that he thought needed choosing because he could win the game without anybody. I kind of think that's what God did. He can win the whole game by himself. Doesn't the hill show that? The one that looks like a skull? Doesn't Calvary show that he can win the whole game all by himself? Well, why then did he choose us? I guess to show he could do the whole thing by himself. Because if he can use people like us to get it done, I get the idea he could use anybody or nobody because he took a bunch of nobodies and joined them to the only one that was anybody to take the gospel to everybody. Wasn't that what he did? And that's good news to me because that means God is on my side and the corollary of that is just as true. Nobody can successfully stand on the other side. When God and I are on this side, the rest of the universe can stand on that side and I have absolutely nothing to fear. That's what I'm going to say to it. God's for me. Who's against me? Well, Richard, are you sure he's for you? Are you sure he's for you? Are you sure he's for us? Well, he didn't spare his son. If he didn't spare Jesus, surely he's not going to. If he didn't say no at the hill, surely he's not going to say no in the valley. If he didn't say no when Jesus was on the cross, surely he's not going to say no in the midst of my sin. Who is it? Who's going to bring any charge against me when it's God that justifies me? When the judge has already struck the gavel and he said, innocent, any lawyer that tries to convict me of guilt will be in contempt of court and he'll be tried. And the gavel's fallen. 
and I'm innocent. Well, who's going to condemn me? Well, if somebody tries, who do they have to contend with? If anybody wants to condemn me, they don't contend with my life. They contend with him who is my life. Christ Jesus died, was buried, was raised, is at the right hand of God, and intercedes for the saints. Now, if you can take away the cross and fill the tomb and empty the throne and shut Jesus' mouth, then you can condemn me. But until you can do that, here is an uncondemnable man. I am without condemnation because Jesus died, Jesus was raised, Jesus is enthroned, and Jesus pleads my case. Praise God for Jesus and for His grace. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I found out I can't be any charge laid again. I can't be beaten. I can't be charged. I can't be condemned. Can I be separated? Well, let's try a few things. Will trouble do it? Hardship? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? What if I'm killed several times a day? What if I'm killed all day long? I don't know how you can be killed all day long, but what if I am? Suppose I face seven deaths in one day. Will that separate me from the love of God? Paul has one word about that. No. It's a good word. We'll study it tomorrow night. We're going to learn how to say no. Paul knew how to say no. God knew how to say no. We're going to learn tomorrow night how to say no. The grace of God teaches us to say no. He said, can anything separate us? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loves us. You see, it's God's love that makes me uncondemnable. It's God's love that makes me unchargeable. It's God's love that makes me inseparable from Him. I cannot be separated from God. I cannot be. Well, do you have a final conclusion, Paul? More than that, I have a convinced. I'm not going to draw a theological conclusion, Paul says. I'm going to tell you about what I'm convinced of. He says, for I am convinced. No doubt, all the evidence is in. He's weighed all the evidence, and Paul says, I am convinced. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nothing in the world around me, neither angels nor demons, nothing in the world above me, neither the present nor the future, nothing behind me or in front of me, nor powers, nothing that of the governments around me, neither height nor depth, nothing in the realm of time or space, and if it didn't get to your trouble, Paul says, I'll leave a few blanks at the bottom, nor any other creation. Just whatever you'd like to fill in. None of that will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What do you say to that? That's about what I'm going to say. Are there any requirements? Well, that'll be another lesson. But there are. I've got to be in Jesus, verse 1. I've got to live in the Spirit, verse 4. The Spirit has to live in me, verse 9. Have to be led by the Spirit, verse 14. Have to suffer with Christ, verse 17. Have to love God, verse 20, 28. Have to be in God's purpose, verse 28. Or back to my one word, I've got to trust. I've got to have faith. I've got to rely on Jesus. I know nearly everybody here. And so an invitation about, you know, what you need to do to be saved would not fit this audience. If you're here tonight and you're struggling with your salvation, 
Grab the person next to you as soon as it's through and say, I'm struggling with salvation. And they'll get you to somebody and end your struggle. And you can go to bed tonight having, not just knowing about it, having everything we talked about tonight. Now, brother, sister, how about you and me? Why have I said all this? I've said all this so that we will serve joyfully. So that all of the burden of joy, all the burden of service is gone now. That you're not driven like a slave to your task. And it really doesn't matter what's happening on the job. It really doesn't matter what's happening in your home. Those things will need to be solved, and they will be. It doesn't really matter what's happening in your relationship to the elders of the congregation here or wherever you're from. That really doesn't matter. That can be solved if this gets solved. The solution begins with your joyful service that you render to God in spite of the job circumstance, in spite of the home circumstance, in spite of the church circumstance. Hallelujah anyway. I mean, if the fig tree doesn't bear any figs, that's all right. If the vine doesn't bear a single grape, that's okay. If there's not a stalk of wheat waving in the field, that's all right. If there is not a single lamb in the flock, okay. If there is not a single cow in the herd, yet will I rejoice in the God of my salvation for he makes my feet like hinds feet and will cause me to walk upon my high places. The book of Habakkuk ends. If you kept time on me, I'm over time, but I only preached till I got through. If you need any help, we'd be glad to try to help. Come quickly while we stand and sing.